0: So let me start out by putting what I think is a relatively controversial proposition on the table, and that's that this investment management business, when stripped down to its bare essentials, is really quite simple. Now, why do I say that? Well, I think if we took the group here today and divided you up into smaller groups of four or five or six, and ask you to talk about what's really important in managing a portfolio that has a very long time horizon, I think that almost all the groups would come to very similar conclusions. If you're investing with a long time horizon, having an equity bias makes sense. Stocks go up in the long run. Bob Schiller's friend Jeremy Siegel wrote a book that has the very simple title, Stocks for the Long Run. we assigned that. Oh, well, the book is assigned. You all know it. <laughs> but the other thing that I think would come out of the discussions is that diversification is important. I mean, anybody who's read a basic finance text, as a matter of fact, I think anybody who thinks about investments in a in a common sense fashion knows that diversification is a, a, an important fundamental tenet of, of portfolio management. As a matter of fact, Harry, Harry Markowitz uh, called diversification a free lunch. Right? We spend all our time in intro, intro-econ figuring out there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, but Markowitz tells us that diversification is a free lunch. For any given level of return, you can reduce the risk. For any given level of risk, you can increase the return. Sounds pretty good. So that's pretty simple, right? Two tenants. An equity bias for portfolios with a long time horizon, and diversification. Bob mentioned in his introduction that I showed up at Yale in 1985 after having spent six years on Wall Street, and I was totally unencumbered by any portfolio management experience. So I thought that was pretty neat. Here I was, back at Yale, with a billion dollar portfolio. It seemed like a lot of money at the time. <laughs> No portfolio management experience, what do I do? Well, one of the things that I think is a sensible thing to do in life is look around at what others are doing. So, I looked at what colleges and universities had done in terms of asset allocation. turns out that 50% of endowment assets in the mid-1980s were invested in common stocks. 40% of endowment assets were in U.S. bonds and, and U.S. cash, and 10% in a smattering of alternatives. Well, I looked at that and I, I, I thought, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. You have half of your assets in one single asset class, U.S. common stocks. You've got another 40% of your assets in U.S. bonds and, and, and cash, so 90% of your portfolio Is in domestic marketable securities, and only 10% invested in things like real estate or venture capital or or private equity, hardly hardly enough to to, to make a difference in terms of the portfolio's returns. So, unencumbered by, I guess, the conventional wisdom, we started out at Yale on on a path that. I think is has fundamentally the changed the way that institutions manage portfolios. A few years ago, I wrote a book called uh, Pioneering Portfolio Management. The reason you could put an audacious title like Pioneering Portfolio Management on the cover of the book was that we moved away from this traditional model with 50% in stocks and 40% in bonds and cash to something that was much more equity oriented and, 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 and much more. Diversified and so what i 'd like to do today is talk to you about how it is that we moved from this old model to uh, what it is that today many institutions call the the Yale model and the way that I would like to talk about this journey that we took is by looking at the tools that we have available to us as investors and these tools are the same tools that We have, whether we're operating as individual investors or institutional investors, and describe how we employ those tools at Yale and how they led us to the portfolio that we have today. Those three tools are asset allocation, market timing, and security selection. The first, asset allocation, basically deals with which assets you have in your portfolio, and in which proportion you hold each of those assets. The second, market timing, deals with short-term deviations from the long-term asset allocations that you establish. And the third, security selection, speaks to how it is you manage each of your individual asset classes. Are you going to hold the market portfolio, index your assets, match the market's results, or are you going to manage each individual asset Class actively trying to beat the market and generate risk-adjusted excess returns. So Let's start out with the first, asset allocation. I think it's pretty widely known that asset allocation is far and away the most important tool that we have available to us as investors. As a matter of fact, it's so widely believed that asset allocation is the most important tool that I think some people have come to the conclusion that it's some sort of law of finance that asset allocation is the most important tool. But it it turns out that it's not a financial law that asset allocation takes center stage. It really is more a description of how it is that we behave. Yale actually has a lot more than the billion dollars that we started with in 1985. I think the Estimate sheet that I got yesterday morning said that we've got about $22.5 billion, so that's that's been a nice run. If I went back to my office after speaking with you this morning and took Yale's $22.5 billion and put all of it into Google stock, asset allocation would have very little to say about what Yale's returns would be. As a matter of fact, security selection would absolutely dominate the results. The idiosyncratic behavior of Google stock from the time that we purchase it to the time that we sell it would define Yale's returns. Or alternatively, if I went back to the office and took Yale's twenty-two and a half billion dollars and decided that I was going to day trade bond futures, security selection wouldn't have anything to say about the returns, asset allocation wouldn't have anything to say about the returns. The returns would be attributable solely to my ability to market time the bond futures market. Now, I'm not going to do either one of those things. I'm not going to put Yale's entire portfolio in Google stock. I'm not going to go back and take Yale's entire portfolio and day trade bond futures, um, in part because it would be bad for me personally. <laughs> I think I would be fired as soon as people found out what it was that I was doing with the portfolio. And. Uh, Overwhelmingly more important it would be bad for, the, bad for the university. It's not a rational thing to do. So what will happen is that Yale will continue to hold a relatively well-diversified portfolio as defined by the range of asset classes in which it invests. And when you look at each of those individual asset classes, domestic equities, foreign equities, bonds, real assets, Absolute return and, and, and private equity, each of those individual asset classes is going to be relatively well diversified in terms of exposures to individual positions or individual securities. And because that's true, then asset allocation ends up being the overwhelmingly important determinant of the university's results. Because we Hold relatively stable, relatively well diversified portfolios, security selection turns out not to be an important determinant of returns for most inv- in investors. And market timing turns out not to be an important determinant of returns. And the, and the last man standing is asset allocation. And that tends to drive both institutional returns and individual returns. Roger Ibbotson, who uh, is a colleague of Bob Schillers and, and mine at the School of Management, has done a fair amount of work studying the relative importance of these sources of returns, and he's come to the conclusion that over 90 percent of the variability of returns in institutional portfolios is attributable to asset allocation. And that's the number that I think most people here cited when they are looking at um, Roger Ibbotson's work. I think one of the more interesting and even simpler concepts that comes out of his study is that more than 100% of returns are defined by asset allocation. Now, how can that be true? How can asset allocation be responsible for more than 100% of investment returns? Well, it can only be true if security selection and market timing detract from institutional returns or individual returns in the aggregate. And, of course, if you think about it, as a community, the investment community is going to lose from security selection decisions. Right? If security selection is a, a zero-sum game, right, the amount by which the winner wins equals the amount by which the loser loses, winners and losers being defined by performance after a security selection bet has been made. Well, that sounds like a zero-sum game, but then if you take into account that you create market impact when you trade, that you pay commissions when you trade, and you frequently pay, pay advisors substantial amounts of money, whether they're mutual fund managers or institutional fund managers, there's this leakage from the system that causes the active results for the community as a whole to be negative. Absolutely the same thing is true on the market timing front. I mean, to the extent that you're making these short-term bets against your long-term policy, it requires trading, and trading is expensive, and it's very expensive when you take into account not only the direct costs but also the costs that you pay advisors to help you help you make these decisions. So it's not surprising that asset allocation explains more than 100% of returns, and that for the community as a whole, market timing and security selection. Are costly and lower the, the, the community's aggregate investment returns. And it's a little bit of a of a digression, but one of the things that I've witnessed over the past 20 years is that the leakage of the the leakage from the, the, the system in terms of the returns that go to the owners of capital, leakage has increased enormously. Uh, think about the advent of hedge funds 20 or 25 years ago. Hedge funds were a blip on the radar screen today they 're a very important part of the funds' management framework. Well those hedge funds charge enormously more than what a, a standard manager of marketable securities charges. Well that leakage, that one and a half or two percent that you pay your hedge fund manager plus the 20 percent of profits, really reduces the Amount of return that's available for the owners of, of, of capital. So this idea that the difference between the returns that you would get if you took your asset allocation and implemented it passively and the actual results that the active investors get, the gap between those two numbers is becoming larger and larger over time, generating more and more returns for the provider of investment management services and lower and lower returns for those that are hiring those external advisors. But to get back on track, let's look at the basic underpinnings to this notion that asset allocation is at the center of the investor's Decision making process. There were two points that we talked about, the hypothetical points that that, that came out of these small group discussions that I uh, suggested uh, we might think about uh, at the beginning of this uh, this talk. First, in terms of equity bias. Now, we're going to go back to Roger Ibbotson at at the School of Management. He did some path breaking work in terms of. Describing capital markets returns over reasonably long periods of uh, of time, Uh, I I guess you've already looked at stocks for the long run. You've seen 200 years worth of data. Uh, Roger Ibbotson's uh, data goes back to 1925, and these are the the actual numbers that we used when we first started uh, doing our mean-variance optimization and our uh, in our simulations, trying to. Come to conclusions about what the appropriate allocations would be for, for Yale's portfolio. And I'm sure you're familiar with the drill. You put a dollar into various asset classes, in this case at the end of 1925, and hold those asset classes for, in this case, 81 years. The numbers go through the end of 2006. And if you put a dollar in Treasury bills, you end up with a, a 19 multiple. That sounds pretty good. You get 19 times your money over 81 years. But then if you take into account that inflation consumes a multiple of eleven and you're an institution like Yale that consumes only after-inflation returns, putting your money into Treasury bills really didn't get you very much. Well, suppose you step out in the risk spectrum and put a dollar into the bond market. Over that eighty-one-year period you would have gotten a multiple of seventy-two. Well, now we're talking some real after-inflation returns that can be consumed, when you move from lending money to the government, either short term with bills or longer term with bonds, to investing in the equity market, there's a stunning difference in terms of the returns. Just by putting money into a broadly diversified portfolio of stocks, you would have gotten 3,077 times your money. And if you would have stepped further out the risk spectrum you w- and put your money into a portfolio of small stocks, you would have gotten 15,922 times your money. So, ownership of stocks absolutely crushes buying bonds. Almost 16,000 times your money, or more than 3,000 times your money in the stock market, as opposed to 72 times your money, or 19 times your money in the, in the bond market, or the bill market. It almost makes you wonder whether this diversification thing. Makes any sense? I mean, why would you do that? Why would you put any of your assets in in, in bonds if stocks are going to give you sixteen thousand times your money? I mean, that the, the, that bond multiple of seventy-two is just a drag on returns. What's the point? This question, particularly in the late 1980s, was very important to me personally because we were trying to put together a, a, a sensible portfolio for Yale, and if that sensible portfolio just involved identifying the high-risk asset class and putting all your assets into, let's say, small stocks. It wouldn't take the Investment Committee very long to figure out that they didn't need to pay me to do that. They could do that on their own and if they didn't need to pay me then I wouldn't have any income to like, put food on the table for my wife and children. <laughs> so, there had to be more to it than just identifying the high-risk asset class and putting your assets there and letting it rip. So I went back and took a, a closer look at Roger Ibbotson's data. and There are lots of examples that will illustrate this point, but the most dramatic occurs around the crash in October 1929. For every dollar that you had in small stocks at the peak of the market, by the end of 1929 you lost 54% of your money. By the end of 1930 you lost another 38% of your money. By the end of 1931, you lost another 50 percent, and by the end of by, by June of 1932, you lost another 32 percent. So for every dollar that you had at the peak, at the trough, you had 10 cents left. And at some point, when your dollars were turning into dimes, you'd say, "Forget this. This is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense for me to." Own these risky small cap stocks, and you would sell your small stocks and put your money where? Either in Treasury bonds or Treasury bills. And of course, that's what the overwhelming portion of the investment community did in the 1930s and in the 1940s and in the 1950s. As long as there was a, a memory of the searing experience that people had in the equity markets around the time of the the Great Crash, people reacted to it by saying, avoid this risky asset. It doesn't make any sense for a fiduciary or for an individual to own these risky things called stocks. As a matter of fact, I was looking at some of the contemporary uh, literature, the popular literature, and there was an article in the Saturday Evening Post, uh, that basically said you shouldn't call stocks securities. That was a ridiculous thing to call them. They should be called insecurities <laughs> because they were so risky. But of course this attitude came at exactly the wrong time, right? Because if you put a dollar into small stocks in June of 1932, by the end of 2006 you would have had 159,000 times your money. So just at the point of maximum opportunity. People were at the point of maximum bearishness about the equity markets. So, the takeaways are that an equity bias is an absolutely sensible underpinning for investors with long time horizons, but that diversification is important. You have to limit your exposure to risky asset classes to a level that allows you to sustain those positions even in the face of. Terribly adverse market conditions. So let's move to the second point: market timing. And I actually have a a quotation here. Uh, A few months ago, uh, some former students of mine, former colleagues of mine, uh, gave this very nice party at the Yale Club. And I used to teach a a big lecture class uh, when I first got to Yale in the in the late 1980s, and my last lecture Always involved taking uh, Keynes's general theory and quoting from it. I think Keynes is one of the most wonderful writers about issues surrounding uh, investment management. And this particular copy was uh, pretty dog eared. As a matter of fact, uh, it was a paperback copy, and I think it was in about eight or ten different pieces. And the people that threw this party remembered that. And so they gave me at this celebration. It made me wonder if they were trying to tell me that I should retire. I don't know. <laughs> felt like a retirement party. I feel like I'm way too young to retire. Uh, but it, it, as, a, as a gift, they gave me a first edition of Keynes's General Theory. And I was coming back to New Haven on the, uh, on the train afterwards and I, I came across this quote. Uh, Keynes wrote that, the idea of wholesale shifts is for various reasons impracticable and indeed undesirable. Most of those who attempt to sell too late and buy too late, And do both too often, incurring heavy expenses and developing too unsettled and speculative a state of mind. And he's absolutely right. Um, I wrote my first book. I already talked about that Pioneering Portfolio Management that deals with the challenges that face institutional investors. Subsequently, I wrote a book uh, called Unconventional Success that deals with individual investors. And in unconventional success, I did a study of individual behavior in their mutual fund purchases and sales around the collapse of the internet bubble in March of 2000. And what I did is I took the 10 best performing internet funds and looked at the returns from 1997 to 2002. Now, this is, I think, a surprising starting point. If you look at the 10 best, Performing internet funds from 97 to 2002, the time-weighted return is one and a half percent per year, positive. So the funds went way up, and then they went way down. But it's positive one and a half percent per year, time-weighted. That's the number that you see in the prospectus or the number that you see in the advertisements. So you say, well, what's the big deal? No harm, no foul. Well. There's another way to look at returns. Those are the dollar weighted returns. And the dollar weighted returns actually do a better job of describing the experience of the group of investors that participated in these funds. Dollar weighted obviously takes into account when the cash flows come in and, w- a- and when they go out. And when you do the dollar weighted returns, you find out that there was $13.7 billion dollars invested in these funds and the investors lost 9.9 billion out of the 13.7 that they committed so the 72% of the money that was invested in these funds was lost and because of the way that we deal with taxes and mutual funds you can get a tax bill for gains that were realized by the investment manager Turning over the portfolio even though you might not have hold the, held the shares during the, the period when the gains were realized. And so, in addition to losing $9.9 billion, uh, there were capital gains distributions of $3.3 billion, representing about 24% of the money that was invested. So, uh, adding insult to injury, you lost 72% of the money and then you got a tax bill um, for 24% of the amount that had been put in. Not a, not a very happy experience. After I wrote the book, Morningstar did a much more comprehensive study of every single one of the equity categories that they follow. There were 17 categories of equity mutual funds, and they compared the dollar-weighted to the to, to the time-weighted returns. And in every one of those 17 categories, the dollar-weighted returns were less than the time-weighted returns. Well, how does that how does that happen? Well, in the same way that These investors in the internet tech funds lost their money. They bought after the funds had gone up and they sold after they'd gone down. And when you buy high and sell low, it's really hard to generate returns, even if you do it with great enthusiasm and in great volume. So the Morningstar study is incredibly damning in terms of the market timing abilities of individual investors. Systematically investors are buying after things have gone up, selling after they've gone down, and the problem is most severe in those funds that show the greatest volatility. The gap in what Morningstar calls the conservative allocation fund is three-tenths of a percent per year. Now, that's not a huge number, but obviously uh, when when you're hoping to beat the market by a point or two, losing by three-tenths of a percent per year because of your market timing uh, inability, is a bad thing. But if you look at the tech fund category, the difference between the dollar-weighted and the time-weighted returns, this is over a ten-year period, is 13.4% per annum. That's stunning. Compound that 13.4% over ten years and there's just an enormous gap between those mutual fund numbers that are in the prospectus and in the advertisement, the time-weighted returns, and the dollar-weighted returns that talk about the Actual experience of the investment community. So, I'm not just going to pick on individual investors, I'm going to pick on in- institutional investors too. I mean one of the studies that I did for my first book, Pioneering Portfolio Management, looked at the behavior of endowments and foundations around the crash in October 1987. And I uh, used to talk about the Crash in October 1987 without explaining what it was. And I I, I do still teach a a seminar uh, in the economics department in the fall. And I started talking about what happened in October 87. And I looked around the room and uh, I I, I realized that I think the students were three or four years old in 1987 and weren't yet reading the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) So just to give you a, a little bit of context, the crash was really an extraordinary event. Uh, according to my calculations, it was a 25 standard deviation event. One standard deviation happens one, one draw out of three, two standard deviations, one out of 20, three standard deviations, one out of 100. An eight standard deviation event happens once out of every six trillion trials. Can't come up with a number to describe a 25 standard deviation event. It's just too large a number, I think, for any of us to to really comprehend. So, in in essence, this collapse in stock prices, the one day collapse in stock prices, I think in the U.S., the prices, depending on which index you were looking at, were down 21, 22 percent in a single day. And interestingly, uh, most. Major markets around the world were off by a similar magnitude. This one-day collapse in stock prices was a virtual impossibility. But, of course, this was just a change in stock prices. It wasn't related to any fundamental change in the economy or any fundamental change in in corporate prospects. It was just a a financial event. if stock prices went down, and oh, by the way, bond prices went up, right? I mean, when people were selling stocks, money had to go somewhere. Well, it went into the bond market. There was a huge rally in Treasury bonds on October 19, 1987. So stocks were cheaper and bonds were more expensive. Well, what do you do? Well, you, you, you buy what's cheap, right, and sell what's expensive. But what did endowments and foundations do? Well, if you look at the annual reports of their asset allocation, in June of 1987 their equity allocation was higher than it had been for fifteen years. Right? The 70s were a terrible time to invest in stocks. A bull market had started in 1982. We were five years into this bull market. People were getting excited about the fact that stocks were going up and equity allocations were at a fifteen-year high. Of course, money had to come from somewhere, so bond allocations were at a fifteen-year low. Fast forward to June 30th, 1988, and stock allocations had dropped, and not only had they dropped, they dropped by more than the decline in stock prices associated with this collapse in October 19, 1987. And bond allocations had increased by more than could be explained by the increase in bond prices over the course of the year. And so the only conclusion that you could draw is these supposedly sophisticated institutional investors sold stocks in November and December and January because they were fearful and they bought bonds in October and November and December, maybe because they were fearful or maybe because they were greedy. But emotion ruled the decisions, not rational economic calculus. And the costs were huge. Not just the immediate costs in terms of the move from, from, from stocks to bonds, but it, it, it took these institutions until 1993, a full six years, to get their bond allocation back down to where it had been prior to the crash in October 1987. And this is in the context of one of the greatest bull markets ever. I mean, I, I, you certainly have to measure the bull market from 1982 to 2000. And some people would say that 2000 was just a blip and, 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 and we're still in this bull market, but r- regardless of how you measure it, for a full half a dozen years in the midst of this bull market, colleges and universities were overallocated to fixed income relative to where they'd been in June of 1987. So, the takeaway is to avoid market timing. The underlying driving force behind market timing decisions seems to be emotional. Fear, greed, chasing performance, buying something after it's gone up, disappointment and sales after something's declined, as opposed to rationally stepping up when something appears relatively attractive and overweighting, and then leaning against the wind by selling something that's performed well. Final source of returns: security selection. We've already talked about how security selection is a zero-sum game. Right, the only way that somebody can overweight Ford Motor Company in the market is to have somebody have a counter position where they're underweight Ford Motor Company, and only one of those is going to be right, as measured by subsequent performance. And the amount by which the winner wins equals the amount by which the loser loses. But it costs a lot to play the game. As a matter of fact, it costs an increasing amount to play the game when you look at the uh, fees that are, are, are paid to uh, investment managers and, and hedge funds. And so, after taking into account the market impact and the commissions and the fees, this zero-sum game becomes a negative-sum game. And When you look at the returns for institutions, you, you, you see exactly what it is that, that you'd expect. Here's ten years' worth of, of, of data f- from the Frank Russell uh, corporation, um, The benchmark, Wilshire 5000 for the ten years ended June 30th, 2005, returned 9.9% per year, and then the average return for the actively managed equity fund was 9.6% per year. So we're back to that 30 basis points. Well, okay, so maybe, on average institutions lose 30 basis point but it's kind of like Lake wobegon right where we all believe that we're better than average so yeah we're we're, we're going to overcome that 30 basis points so that's not that, that's not such a big hurdle but there's a very important phenomenon that you need to take into account when you look at these histories of returns that are generated by active managers and this is true whether you look at a universe of mutual fund managers that we might have available to us as individuals, or whether it's institutional data, such as those that I, I just cited. And that concept is survivorship bias. The only numbers that appear for the trailing 10 years are numbers that are associated with firms that are still in business, right? And there were probably a number of firms that. Over that 10 year period, went out of business. Now, which firms do you think went out of business? Not the ones that are producing great results, right? And the problem is even more severe when you're looking at mutual funds because there's kind of the cynical game that mutual fund management companies play. If they have an underperforming fund, sometimes they Allow it to die a dignified death, although that doesn't happen very often. What they usually do is they take the underperforming fund and they merge it with one that has a better track record, and all of a sudden the underperforming fund's record disappears, and the assets are in a fund that has a a better record, a, a record that you can actually market. And then when we look at the statistics, all we see Are a lot of assets in the fund that performed well, and the underperforming fund that was merged out of existence isn't there anymore. So, how important is this survivorship bias? If you look at the uh, Frank Russell data, and uh, and I just cited 10 year returns ending June 30, 2005, so that period started in 1996. Well, in 1996, there were 307 managers that reported returns. And by the time 2005 rolled around, there were only 177 managers that reported returns. So 130 managers disappeared. Now, more than 130 managers failed because, in addition to survivorship bias, there's something called backfill bias. And that's when a new manager appears subsequent to the beginning of the 10 year period, they'll put not only the new Numbers in, but they'll take the history of the new manager and put that history into the into the database. And which direction is that going to move the numbers? Well, that's going to inflate the numbers too, because the only managers that kind of raise their hand and say, "Hey, I've got this interesting new approach to, 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 to managing uh, domestic equities or whatever the asset class is," are the ones that have succeeded, right? So, so you've got survivorship bias. Taking out bad records, and then you got backfill bias, adding good records, and they both cause the universe of active management returns to appear to be better than the reality, uh, because there's a lot in there that doesn't have anything to do with the average experience of a, in this case, an institutional investor. And sometimes the numbers can be pretty dramatic. I mean, 2000. Was a, a year of great flux in the markets because that's when the internet bubble burst. And if you looked at the domestic equity return, the average return that was posted in 2000, it was minus 3.1 percent. But then, if you fast forward to 2005 and look at the average return that was posted for 2000, it was positive 1.2 percent. So the combination of survivorship bias and backfill bias for that one year. Made 4.3 percentage points difference, right? As reported contemporaneously in 2000, the number was minus 3.1, but if you look at the number reported for 2005 years later, because bad records had disappeared and good records had been added, all of a sudden the average experience for that year went up to 1.2 percent. So this is incredibly important because when you look at this. Number that we started out with saying, oh, the benchmark was 9.9 but net of fees the managers on average only lost 30 basis points or three-tenths of a percent, you'd say, well, that's a game I don't mind playing. But then if you adjust for survivorship bias you end up concluding that the deficit wasn't three-tenths of a percent but the, the, the deficit was actually two full percentage points. And in a world where if you can win by a percentage point or two relative to the market to have the average be minus 2 full percentage points is pretty daunting so that's the kind of issue with survivorship bias and backfill bias in the relatively established asset class of domestic equities the problem is even more severe when you look at something that's relatively new, like the hedge fund world. Now, why is that? Well, if if hedge funds first became mainstream maybe fifteen years ago, then what are you looking at in terms of history? The only history that you would have had fifteen years ago would have been those funds that produced great returns. right? So, it's all identified after the fact. At least in the domestic equity world, you've got a, a pretty stable base that you were looking at 10 years ago. So the survivorship bias and the backfill bias w- would be much, much more of a problem in the, I- in the hedge fund world. Bert Malkill, who wrote a book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which, if it's not on your reading list, you, 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 you ought to pick up and uh, uh, take a look at because it's really. Fun to read, but it's also extremely insightful. Took a look at survivorship bias and backfill bias in in the hedge fund world. And he looked at a a group of hedge funds that numbered 331 in 1996. And by 2004, eight years later, 75% of them had disappeared. So looking at this particular group, He estimated survivorship bias to be 4.4% per year and backfill bias to be 7.3% per year. So we're talking about a a group of funds that in aggregate probably produce somewhere in the low teens' returns and he's got 11.7% per year combined survivorship bias and backfill bias. Roger Ibbotson took a look at a, a larger group of funds 3,500 funds over a 10 year period and found survivorship bias at 2.9% per year and backfill bias at 4.6% per year. So, huge amounts of institutional funds and individual funds are going into this hedge fund world. You look at the returns that are reported for hedge funds in aggregate, they're generally 12, 13, 14% per year for the last five or 10 years. And in the case of Burt Malkiel's data, more than eleven percent per year. In the case of Roger Ibbotson's data, um, between seven and eight percent per year. Of those returns can be explained either by backfill bias or survivorship bias. If you subtract those numbers from the reported numbers, the returns that the investors who are actually <coughs> investing in the funds that are defined as part of the universe at the time are low, maybe mid-single digits, far less than uh, people would expect for the amount of risk that they're taking to be exposed to this particular group of uh, active managers. The final point that I want to make with respect to security selection actually is a, a little bit different. It has to do with the, with the degree of opportunity. and This is once you've decided that you're going to be An active manager and try and pursue market-beating strategies, how do you decide where it is that you want to spend your time and energy? Now, I think it's logical that if you're going to try and beat the markets, you'd want to beat the markets where the opportunity was greatest. Where's the opportunity greatest? The opportunity (coughs) is greatest where assets are least efficiently priced. How do you figure out where things are least efficiently priced? Well, unfortunately, uh, financial economists don't have any direct measures of market efficiency. But I think there's a story that you can tell about groups of active manager returns that will help point you toward those asset classes that are least efficiently priced. If if an asset class has constituents that are efficiently priced, then it's very hard to generate excess returns. As a matter of fact, if things were perfectly efficiently priced there wouldn't be any opportunity to generate excess returns. And if you make active bets, if you make bets against the market, then whether you win or lose has to do with luck. So how are managers going to behave in an asset class where things are efficiently priced? Well, they're not going to make big bets, right? If they do make big bets, maybe they get lucky once or twice or three times, but ultimately their luck's going to run out and when their luck runs out they'll post bad results and get fired. Well, how do you stay in business? You stay in business by looking a lot like the market. So, what market might be efficiently priced? Well, the bond markets in general, and the high-quality bonds in particular, are probably easiest to value. Right? It's it's all about math. Right? In a government bond, you don't have to worry about default. Uh, Generally, you don't have to worry about optionality or call provisions, and so it's math. You're given coupon payments every six months and then when the bond matures you get your money back. So there's not a lot of room in the government bond market or other high-quality bond markets to to generate excess returns. How about the uh, other end of the spectrum? Well, the other end of the spectrum is a market that. Is very hard to define. As a matter of fact, there might not even be a benchmark against which you can measure results. And you'd think about the venture capital world, right? I mean, how do you hug the market in the venture capital world? You can't, it's very idiosyn- idiosyncratic. Uh, if you're doing early stage venture investing, you're backing. Entrepreneurs and ideas, and they're operating out of their garage. I mean, the, 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 this romantic notion of what goes on in Silicon Valley actually uh, still holds true in a lot of cases. But there, th- there's absolutely no way, as a venture capital investor, you could index the venture capital market. So, if you look at the behavior of groups of active managers and the dispersion of returns, I think it gives you some idea of what the Efficiency is with which assets in these individual asset classes are priced. And just as I foreshadowed, if you look at the difference between the first and third quartile in the bond market, these are active returns over a 10 year period, again ending June 30, 2005. In the fixed income market, the difference between first and third quartile is a half a percent per annum. That's an incredibly tight distribution. Of returns. Half of the returns are within a a spread of a half a percent. And then as you move out to the equity markets where it's harder to price things as uh, efficiently, large cap stocks, there's two full percentage points first to third quartile. Small cap stocks are tougher to price than large cap stocks, so there's a 4.7 percentage point differential first to third quartile. The hedge fund world, Uh, 7.1% first to third quartile. Real estate, 9.3% per annum. Leverage buyouts, 13.7% per annum. This is over a ten-year period, so now we're starting to talk some pretty significant dispersion. And Of course, in the venture capital world, the least efficiently priced of all, there's a 43.2 percentage point differential between the top quartile and the bottom quartile. So if I'm going to be active in terms of managing my portfolio, should I spend my time and energy trying to beat the bond market, where even if you can find somebody who's going to be a first quartile manager, there's almost no difference between the first quartile return and the third quartile return? Or should I spend my time and energy trying to find a top quartile bond man, a, a, a top quartile real estate manager, or buyout manager, or venture capital manager? I think the the, the answer is pretty obvious. You want to spend your time and energy pursuing the most inefficiently priced asset classes because there's an enormous reward for identifying a top quartile venture capitalist and almost no reward for being in the top quartile of a high-quality bond universe. So the overall conclusions are that with respect to asset allocation you want to create an equity-oriented diversified portfolio. With regard to market timing, you don't want to do it. And with respect to security selection, you want to consider your skills and you want to consider the efficiency of markets when you're making your decisions as to whether or not to pursue passive management or active management. And so, where did this lead us in terms of, of, of Yale's portfolio? Our current portfolio has 11% allocated to domestic equities, 15% to foreign equities, and and 4% to bonds. So traditional marketable securities account for 30% of assets. The absolute return portfolio, which is a group of hedge funds that strive to produce fundamentally uncorrelated returns, accounts for 23% of assets. Our real assets portfolio, which includes timber, Oil and gas and real estate amounts to 28 percent of the portfolio, and private equity, which includes venture capital and leverage buyouts, is 19 percent of assets. So, 70 percent of the portfolio is in absolute return, real assets, private equity, alternatives broadly defined. And if you take this portfolio and apply the tests that we Articulated at the outset of the lecture today, equity orientation and diversification. The portfolio is clearly equity oriented. 96% uh, of assets are invested in some type of vehicle that we would expect to generate equity like returns over reasonably long periods of time. And in terms of diversification, there are half a dozen asset classes with weights that range between 4% and 28%. So if you just came down and, uh, and took a look at that and compared it to you know, 50 percent in domestic stocks and 40 percent in domestic bonds and cash and 10 percent in the smattering alternatives, you'd say that this is really a much, much better uh, diversified portfolio than the one with which we started. And the results have uh, they've been okay <laughs> over the past twenty years we've generated a 15.6% per annum return. But that headline number obviously has a lot to do with the equity orientation of the portfolio but doesn't describe the importance of the diversification. We've had no down years since 1987. Uh, 1987, that was the, uh, uh, the, the crash in October that I, that I talked about earlier. And in that year, we were early on in terms of diversifying the portfolio. Right, we'd only been um, working on that program for for two years, and even so, the negative return was less than one percent. So it was a, it was a modest negative return. Probably a more important test of the portfolio was what happened around the collapse of the internet bubble in 2000, and in 2000. And The year ended June 30th, 2001, and 2002. Returns for institutional investors were, on average, uh, negative in both of those years, and actually in every year since 1987, Yale has had positive returns. So the the equity orientation drove the returns, but the diversification allowed us to deliver those returns in a stable fashion which is incredibly important for an institution like Yale that requires uh, a steady supply of funds to finance its operations. When I started in 1985, the uh, distribution to the operating budget was $45 million. That represented 10% of revenues and that was the lowest level um, for the entire century, uh, the entire 20th century, 10% of, uh, of revenues. The amount that we're uh, spending for the year of June 30, 2008, is 843 million. That represents 37 percent of revenues, and we're projecting expenditures for the following year of a billion 150 million, which will be about 45 percent of revenues. So the uh, results have been really quite extraordinary my favorite way to to measure the results is actually to compare what Yale achieved with what we would have had if we would have just uh, experienced average returns over the over the past 20 years and the difference between the average return for colleges and universities and Yale's returns has added 14 point four billion dollars to the university's coffers and whether you measure it uh, in terms of dollars value added or in terms of uh, returns. The, Yale has the best record among colleges and universities for the, for the past two decades. Um, so with that, I'd be uh, happy to take any questions that you might have. The question is if uh, a group of Yaleys started a hedge fund, <laughs> what would they have to do to convince me to uh, invest in them? Uh, one, one of the things that, that, that we've done over the years is been open minded about backing groups that, that, that don't have uh, traditional investment credentials. If you, if you went to a, a corporate pension plan or a, a state pension manager, uh, they'd have a very bureaucratic process. That Probably a 50 or 100-page questionnaire that you had to fill out. You'd have to deal with uh, consultants. You'd have to have 10 years or five years worth of audited uh, performance statistics. We tend to think that that's not the richest uh, pond within uh, within within which we, we we should fish. We we think that the more interesting investment opportunities are kind of outside of the, the, the mainstream with more entrepreneurial firms and ones that might have less, l- less traditional backgrounds. That said, we just don't take flyers on people that we think have interesting resumes. We want to have a, a demonstrated ability to operate in the markets that the uh, investment management firm is uh, suggesting that we back them. And I, I would say part of what we look at uh, are hard, quantitative factors, but probably more important than the, the, than the numbers are the, the, the soft, qualitative attributes. It, it's almost like what you look for in a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, right? You want people of, of high integrity. You want people of unimpeachable character. You want people that are, are smart, uh, incredibly hard-working. And in the investment world, you want somebody who's really obsessed with the markets. I mean, somebody, is, is, is somebody who uh, doesn't define winning by getting as rich as they possibly can uh, because if that's, their, if that's their goal, there are all sorts of things that they can do to get rich. That don't have anything to do with generating investment returns. We want people who are, are, are maniacally focused on beating the markets, generating superior investment returns, and that's a, that, that's an incredibly important distinction because, uh, think about it. If if, if, we, if you what you want to do is get rich, you can put together a reasonable investment record, and then raise staggering amounts of money, size is the enemy of performance, right? So that staggering amount of money, then impairs the fund manager's ability to continue generating excellent returns but they can stay in business and collect the fees that they (coughs) get for having this huge pile of money. The type of manager we're looking for is somebody who strives to generate excellent returns and they'll frequently uh, raise modest amounts of money and close to new investors. Measuring their success by beating the market, not by generating huge flows of, of, of fees for themselves. So it's a combination of uh, of looking at kind of objective attributes and uh, subjective characteristics, and, and and finding people who ultimately will be good good partners for the for the university. Yeah, the, the question is how we've uh, dealt with the uh, decline in, 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 in housing prices. We don't have uh, really much of any direct exposure to uh, home builders or to the housing industry. Most of our real estate exposure is institutional uh, acquisitions of office buildings, uh, largely in major markets, central business districts. So, you'd find uh, Yale with interests in office buildings in New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Uh, uh, some in secondary markets as well but um, predominantly in um, large metropolitan downtown areas. There's also some um, hotel investments, retail properties, Smattering of industrial properties, not a lot of uh, exposure to um, individual houses. The only way that we would get that occasionally would be through some sort of lot financing uh, activities, but that's not something that I've generally liked. I I don't think the housing industry in general is a good place to be because of its um, sometimes violent cyclicality. We did have. uh, a large, short position um, in subprime mortgage-backed securities, which has paid off enormously for the university and really helped protect assets in the past nine months or, or, or a year. And uh, yeah, I think that, that, that generally speaking and, and Bob Schiller can speak to this a, a, a lot with a lot more authority than I can this bubble was not something that should have surprised people. And I thought the university positioned itself well to take advantage of this um, really not surprising uh, collapse in housing prices. Isn't that market timing? Isn't that market timing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it all depends on uh, uh, your uh, perspective. Um, I think market timing, as I've defined it, has to do with short-term deviations from, from your long-term policy targets. So, I mentioned that our, our domestic equity par- target was 11%. If I came to the office uh, yeah, next week and decided domestic stocks were too high, I want to move that target down to 8% in, in the way that I've described market timing. That would be a market timing move. And we're very careful not to do that. We, we, we establish these. Uh, Targets we review them once a year, we don't make changes in many years, they're they're, uh, quite stable. And uh, when we do move them, we don't move them by a lot. But that doesn't mean that we don't manage the the, the portfolio actively. So, if we see areas that are particularly interesting, uh, we're more than happy to deploy capital uh, to take advantage of what we think are Cheap assets or expensive assets. Uh, We made (coughs) a big bet against um, internet stocks in 1999 and and, and 2000 that was very profitable for the university. Uh, As I mentioned, there was a a, a big bet um, that credit spreads both in mortgages and in corporates were way too narrow in the past couple of years and that we thought that, If they were priced rationally, those spreads would widen and we put ourselves in a position to profit from that. And today we're looking at uh, opportunities in in, um, distressed securities. A lot of these loans that were made in 2005 and 2006 and early in 2007 were made at at very, very narrow spreads. And there are opportunities out there to buy bank loans, which are at the very top of the capital structure uh, that we believe will be uh, money good, For prices in the in the '80s, right? And and if it turns out that they're money good, you get your interest, and you get a you know a dollar for every eighty-five cents that you invested in a in a few years. So, if markets offer offer us opportunities, we're more than happy to 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 take advantage of them. Um, So we 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 will make uh, valuation. Bets we'll, we'll look at things, sectors, say they're cheap or expensive, and, and, and exploit the opportunity. But at least in terms of how I define market timing, it wouldn't be included in that. Um, it wouldn't be included in that definition. Uh, the, the, the first question is, um, what's the, the the beta of the Yale portfolio, and that's not that's not a way that we really think about it. But I do believe that the risk level of the university's portfolio is really quite low in statistical terms, much lower than the risk level that you'd have if you had a traditional uh, portfolio dominated by marketable securities. And the reason it's low is that we do have. <laughs> what I think is is, is superior diversification and, and that that really lowers the university's risk. A lot of people look at Yale's portfolio and say, oh, it's risky because you've got venture capital and you've got timber and you have all these things that, that, that you might believe are individually risky. But part of the magic of diversification is if you've got things that are individually risky but they're not well correlated one to another, the overall portfolio risk level is quite low. So I, I, I believe that we have quite a low-risk uh, portfolio. Uh, the second part of the question dealt with the changes in our exposure to uh, foreign assets, and that's an area that we've been very interested in. Our, our foreign exposure is not limited to the marketable security exposure, which I uh, cited as being 15% of the fund, but there's foreign exposure. In real estate, there's foreign exposure and leverage buyouts. There's foreign exposure in venture capital. Uh, it's uh, something that, that permeates the the, the the portfolio, and I think provides really interesting investment opportunities because a lot of the foreign markets are are less efficiently priced than those that you find in um, the, the, the the U.S. And I I think the uh, uh, fact that Our foreign investments are generally denominated in currencies other than the dollar. Is also attractive too. uh, A good diversifying uh, tool for the university. Uh, As the economy heads into recession, are you looking to short more equities than before? And how do you mean bullish uh, in the this economic climate? The uh, question was whether uh, we were looking to take more short positions as uh, the economy appears to be moving. Into recession, and and, and I guess the, the second part of the question was how do you remain bullish in this in, in this kind of environment? And I think that the, the best answer to that is uh, a quote from one of my contemporaries, who I think is one of the one of the best investment managers out there, a guy named Seth Klarman, who uh, works at a, a fund in Boston called Baupost. And Seth said that what he does is worries top down and invest bottom-up. So I read the Wall Street Journal every morning and I I worry about the credit crisis and I worry about credit cards and I worry about auto loans and I worry about corporate loans and I worry about the solvency of the banking system. And then I go to work and I try and find the best opportunities that I possibly can. So uh, the worrying top-down helps because you you don't want to put yourself in a position where um, you're going to get hurt by some adverse macro sectoral <laughs> uh, circumstance, but there's no way that you can take you know twenty two and a half billion dollars and be in the markets when they're attractive and out of the markets when they're not attractive. so you just say, okay, fine, this is the the, the macro circumstance that we're dealing with, and we're going to do absolutely the best job we can identifying individual specific bottom up opportunities uh, to deploy the funds. Uh, how do you bottom without Well, I think one of the question uh, the, the question is how how can you uh, successfully uh, invest in a in a market where I guess wh- wh- what people say is uh, you might catch a falling knife, right? You, you buy something that's down thirty percent, but it's got another fifty percent to to go, and I think it just has to do with with, with time horizon. Particularly if you have a value orientation, uh, you tend to to buy things early. And if you bought them with a good, sound, fundamental investment case and prices are down from where you made your purchase, uh, have enough dry powder so that you can you know, purchase some more at the now lower price, but have enough confidence in your, in your thesis to be able to hold the position through the, the decline and, and wait for the markets to recognize the, the, the value that, that you identified. Uh, I think one of the most pervasive problems in the financial markets is investment with too short a time horizon. I mean, it, it, the The fact that people look at quarterly returns of mutual funds is incredibly dysfunctional. I mean there's no way that you can expect somebody quarter in and quarter out or month in and month out to produce superior returns. There just aren't pricing anomalies that are significant that are going to resolve themselves in a matter of months or um, weeks, and and, and so it's a silly game to play. So, by extending your time horizon to three years or four years or five years, it opens up a whole host of investment opportunities that aren't available to people that are playing this silly short-term game. And so, it's not a big deal to buy something you know, at a price that you think is uh, attractive, have it go down 20 or 30 or 40 percent. That ought to be almost a positive thing because you get a chance to add to the position at even lower prices, as long as you're ultimately right that sometime in the three or fi- four or five-year time horizon, you have your investment thesis proves out and you're ultimately able to uh, exit the position at a profit. Oh, the, the, the questions about housing indexes, I'll, d- I'll defer those to Bob Schiller. <laughs> I couldn't answer a question like that in front of him. <laughs> Great, thank you very much.